What up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Padalano, and we are the Cashflow Kings. The Cashflow Kings podcast discusses money, finance, mindset, and investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate. Thanks for joining the Cashflow Kings, and welcome to episode 29 with Ellie Perlman. We are here to help you crush your goals. So, Ellie, welcome. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Frank. How are you guys? Good, right? Good. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm recording from my uh, home in Santa Monica. Awesome. Your background looks a lot nicer than where we're, we are recording from in cold Rhode Island. So. Yeah, well, it's, it's sunny, it's, you know, 360 days out of the year, but you also pay a lot for real estate and taxes. So there's, there's, some, uh, there's, there's pros and cons in living in Santa Monica, but I, I wouldn't live anywhere else if, you know, I can control it. Awesome. Awesome. So I know before we jumped on the podcast, you talked or spoke a little bit about your background, how you get started in real estate. I was wondering if maybe you could dive in, give a quick, quick story about um, how you started and your interest in real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, I've been here for only five years and I started my career back in Israel. I was, uh, I was always, always interested in real estate. I knew that real estate was the way to go because I looked around me and I, I asked myself, all the most successful, you know, people, what do they do? What are they involved with? So some of them were involved with oil and gas, which was not interesting to me, but most of them had a, some sort of, you know, real estate business or real estate holdings. And because I didn't have money to buy anything, or so I thought that I needed to have money to get involved in real estate, I went to law school and became a lawyer and basically represented a lot of real estate investors and companies and that was my, you know, first experience with real estate. And pretty early on, I realized, hey, I'm probably not in the right side of the table. I need to be my clients and I need to be the one who's looking for deals and buying stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and still, I didn't have enough money to buy anything. And so the next step for me was to move to a much less, you know, desirable or shiny role in asset management, in, in property management. And I became a property man manager dealing with tenants and doing all that and really learning the business. And I felt, okay, I've made another step towards owning real estate. And then I realized that I wanted to start a real estate company and invest. And I moved to the U.S. And, uh, you know, I went to MIT, got my MBA degree. And after that, I started investing in real estate as a syndicator. And when I say syndicator, it's basically I'm investing with, you know, other investors and together we, we own a property. Now, to remind you, I didn't have any money to start. And most people who start in real estate, or I don't know if most, but many don't have money or experience. And it's kind of, you know, you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. I need money to invest in real estate, but I need real estate to make me money so I can buy something. Yes. And how can I, I'm, I'm not inexperienced, so how do I start investing? I need experience. And um, I found a very creative way. Actually, it's not that creative to own real estate. And that leads us to the first deal uh, that I actually lost and then gained back. Um, and so the story was that I was looking for a property for quite a while. Okay. And during that time, I was already talking with investors and preparing them. So one day I'm going to find very soon, I'm going to find a property and we can all buy it together. I now, love that. Can I pause yeah. you for one second there? 
So I think that's a difficult conversation that a lot of people struggle with of, of building that rapport with investors ahead of time. And I know that it's like we talked about, or like you spoke about earlier, it's like the chicken or the egg, right? But I think it's important to have those conversations up front. So I'm not sure, would you be willing to share some of the um, dialogue that you held with investors and how you framed it to make them comfortable to wait for that deal? Yeah, absolutely. So in my case, you know, I did have experience in real estate and, you know, I came from the legal world and then, you know, property management. So it was a little bit of an easier conversation, but my number one advice to anyone who's listening and wanting to get into real estate, but they basically don't have experience is to find someone with experience. And why is that? A, it takes a lot of the pressure off of you because you're dealing with other people's money if, if you're raising capital from others, but you don't have to figure it all out. You can take the, the first step and let someone more experienced actually take care of the entire deal and you can help with something, either help with raising capital, managing investor relations, find the deal, find some sort of value that you can provide. And then Absolutely. the conversation with investors is not about, wait a minute, have you done it before? What do you know about real estate? It's, you know, we're, we're, when they ask that, you can basically say, hey, I'm partnering with so-and-so. Right. And they own 200, 5,000, 300 units, whatever it is. So you're borrowing their, basically their track record. And that's how you're starting to build your own track record. Because then I love that. not on what you've done and what you don't, haven't done, but it's basically, we like you, we trust you, we know you. About your experience, well, you're partnering with someone who has that, so now we feel comfortable. I and think that's I yeah. think that's huge, yeah. So Frank always talks about all the time that real estate investing is a team sport. Yeah. So if you can prove an aptitude to attract the right team members up front, that's gonna make it a lot easier to attract capital when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And if people ask me, okay, we get that, but where, where can we find those people? How, how am I going to find the people that I can partner with? And the second question is, if they're experienced, why do they need me? What, what can right. I bring to the table? And I want to pause here and I want to answer those questions, but I want to finish the story first. And that partially is going to answer some of those questions. You got it. Um, so basically my property manager came to me and said, Hey, there's, here's a deal. There's a deal that we used to manage. It's a great deal. You really want to look into it. And so I did, and I really liked it. I made an offer. And when you buy multifamily properties, you make offers. And then the seller chooses three to four groups to basically to speak with. And then they choose their, you know, the, the buyer and, we had, I had a great conversation with the seller because I've done a lot of homework. You know, I went, I flew to Texas to see the deal. So I knew a lot about the deal. I was just going to ask, and, where was the deal? Yep. Yeah. In Texas, DFW. Nice. And, um, and then the, the, um, I, I get a call from, um, the, the broker and he basically says, so I have good news and bad news. The good news is that it's only you and another another group and the seller is trying to fit, to make up their minds who they want to go with. And the, but the bad news is that he's having a hard time deciding. And so, you know, long story short, the seller, um, well, actually before the end, um, I, I had a mentor at that time 
And I called him and I said, Hey mentor, I have a deal. Give me some tips on how I can, you know, get the deal. And, and I gave, I said the name of the deal. And then he said, um, we are competing with you, I think, on that deal because <laughs> wow. we're, we were told that we, we, there's another group. And so basically he didn't know about that, obviously. I didn't know until we were talking about it. And then we had to stop talking because it's unethical to, to speak about, you know, talk about the deal when yep. you're competing. So um, before the broker actually called me to say that the seller chose, had chosen the other group, I got a call from that mentor and he said well um again i have bad news and i have good news the 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 bad news is that i mean for you the bad news is that we got the deal the good news is um do you want to partner with me that's and, awesome right and that's so, how i lost the deal just to win it back right so that honestly that's an amazing story right but that puts you in really good company when you recognize that you're bidding against your mentor Right. So, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I was a little gutsy there, but um, yes, it's um, it, it was a little scary. I'm not going to lie, but I always operate in an area where I'm a little bit scared because this is how you grow. If Absolutely. You're not, even when you're a baby, it's scary to start walking, right? Because you might fall. But if you're going to just sit down and protect yourself from falling and, you know, from really pushing yourself, you're not going to make it to running at some, you know, someday. Yep. And so I found a way we together, my mentor and I found a way where I can actually give, provide some value to him. And that kind of answers, you know, the, the, the part of the two questions that I uh, talked about earlier, where can you find those people? You can mentor, you can hire a mentor. They can definitely help you. Um, not that you can partner with any mentor, but it can definitely help you position yourself in a certain way that will give you credibility. If yep. you're associating yourself with that mentor, Hey, I'm part of this mentors program, we're working together. So you're, you're showing them that you're gaining experience and knowledge through that mentor. You can go to conferences, um, you know, conferences, there are many conf good conferences out there that you can go and start networking and meeting people. I think these are the best two ways. If you read a good article, if you listen to a podcast, reach out to the podcaster or to the guest and see, you know, what's their pain point, if they're open to partnering and what they need. And everybody needs something. Absolutely. Everybody. So there's always a way to add value. Yep. Um, and this, this answer to the second question is, okay, how, you know, what can I bring to the table? In many cases, there's always something you can bring to the table. If a, a syndicator is struggling with finding deals, you can create a plan where you get that deal for them. If they need to raise money and, you know, you can come and, and bring some of that, fun, you know, that equity so you can help bring some value. There's always, always a way to bring value. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing those stories. I think those are incredibly insightful. Um, one thing that I want to circle back on in your story, because I won't say that mine was similar, um, but uh, sorry. It was slightly similar, but probably not on the same level. Um, the way that I heard the story, when you were still living in Israel, you went from being an attorney to a property manager. What were your friends and family saying to you at that point when you made that transition? <laughs> they thought I was crazy. Yeah. Um, and not only friends and family, also random people I met that um, saw me doing, you know, the grunt work, looked at me and, and said and, and asked me point blank, 
you left your job as a lawyer to do this? And I said, yeah, I know where I'm going. And this, this is great. I mean, it was, for me, it was much more interesting. Yep. Um, and, and, but, but I'm grateful for that experience because, uh, you know, it, I experienced the, the last recession because I was representing investors with investment banks. And yep. when all the funding dried up in one day it was so sudden, it caught us so, you know, we were not ready for it. That really shaped my personality as an investor and my investment philosophy. So I'm a very, very conservative investor. And that's why I'm very careful with my investments. So every little experience was definitely, you know, beneficial. Got it. I want to touch on something based on what you've already talked about. And it's a whole concept of so many people that I know that don't want to do real estate always say that it takes money to make money. And I just want to remind people that it doesn't have to be your money. <laughs> exactly. It takes equity. Now the question is equity can come in many forms. It could be paper equity. It can be sweat equity. And yep. if you're willing to sweat and work hard and talk to people and talk to investors and network and create your community and, and create an investor list, I know many, many syndicators who started without having any money. So yeah, you do need obviously money for the down payment. That's why you're interacting with investors. You do need some money up front for expenses that you are being reimbursed later. So if you're not liquid, you can borrow this money. And some people are there to you know, lend the money to you for a certain interest rate or for a small piece of the equity. There's always, always creative ways to create wealth. And most, I think most of the really, the, you know, most of the wealthiest people on the planet didn't start with anything. So how yes. did they do it? They found creative ways to tap into, you know, another source of, of equity and build our equity from there. So this is one of the limiting beliefs and the misconceptions about real estate. And I, I just, I've seen it so many times, people who didn't have money, that's why they went to real estate because they wanted to make money and they didn't have right. it. And now they're in a very, very different place. Definitely. So transitioning from Israel to the U.S., are there any interesting comparisons between investing in Israel versus the U.S.? Are there certain um, advantages to investing overseas versus the U.S.? And maybe you can touch on some of those things if you've come across any. Yeah, I think the major thing is that we don't have in Israel, and I think the same goes for Canada, also Spain. Um, we don't have those large multifamily properties, garden style apartment buildings Got it. Um, that you can find anywhere here in the States. So even if we're talking about a 20, you know, a, a 20 unit apartment building, it's still, you know, this model does not really exist in Israel. In Israel, it's, okay. you know, most of what you, you walk down the street, it looks like an apartment building. They're all condos. They're individually owned. There's no, you know, one building that is managed by one company or one investor with a property management company that manages the building. So the product is not there and the lending, you know, environment is very, very different. You don't have those loans, you know, here, last deal we've done, it was about $20 million loan for 3.6% interest rate with three years of interest only. You don't get those numbers, right. you know, at least not where I'm coming from. You yeah. only have to go to conventional banks, you know, it, usually it's over five to six percent interest rate they don't 
really know they don't like to give huge loans without compensating themselves and here you have once you're above five units your building is um considered commercial and right. it means that you fall into the bucket of an agency debt you're qualified technically for an agency debt and agency it's freddie mac and fannie mae they are backed by the government those two agencies which means that you can get really good terms that you can't really get outside of the, the U.S., not to my knowledge, at least. Definitely. Definitely. There's a lot of opportunities uh, here that aren't necessarily ever in a lot of other places or parts of the world. Absolutely. Um, and as an immigrant, you know, I, I'm looking at all those opportunities and I just, I can't believe it. It's, it's so, you know, I'm so grateful, you know, to be here and to be able to take part of, of this, you know, to be part of this country that have, you know, an active role in, you know, in the economy, it's really, really rewarding. Absolutely. So I know that you talked about some of the deals that, uh, or your first deal that you're looking at taking down and you're bidding against your mentor. What are you, so as you approach a deal nowadays, what are some of the things that you're looking for, the dynamic of the deal, where you can find value in those purchases? So I normally look at you know, two things after I'm verifying that the location is, is good. Right. I'm looking at some value add components. So anything okay. that I can value add to, if it's turnkey, it's less interesting to me. When I say turnkey, I mean a property that is, you know, highly occupied rents are exactly where they should be. And there's no way to increase them in any, you know, any strategy. Um, and so I'm looking at either a property that for some reason expenses are way over what, what, you know, we can operate the property. So sometimes, you know, you can increase the uh, operation costs and create value that way. Got it. Most of the time, it, most of the time, it, you know, many times the value add comes in the form of increasing income. So okay. you can either renovate a unit. And when we walk, you know, a property, we go into a unit and we say, okay, we can remove the carpets and put, you know, um, vinyl, you know, or, or faux wood flooring. And we can bring stainless steel appliances or black appliances yep. instead of the white ones. And that way we can convince new tenants to pay higher rents. So if right now we're charging $1,000 for two, you know, two bedroom apartment, maybe we can charge 1200 Yep. 1150. So that way we can basically look at the value and see how we can increase the value. It can also be by thinking creatively and saying, how can we make this place more desirable for, for tenants? So, yep. you know, one idea is to take the clubhouse and to allocate a portion of it and make it kind of a WeWorks, you know, space. It doesn't cost much. That's a really and cool thought. Yeah, just to bring some tables, you buy some tables, you have some plugs, coffee machine, boom, you have WeWork. It's not that challenging. I love that. Um, and, you know, you can say, hey, why don't I ask everyone, you know, who, who lives here, if they want, if they're willing to pay us $25 or $20 a month, if they have their own parking spot. Yep. And we just go and spray the number, you know, reserved and it's zero cost. So the maintenance value can do it. So all kinds of, you know, creative ways of, you know, maybe adding washers and dryers to the units. You pay seven, $800, you charge 35 to $50 a month. Just right. thinking creatively, and that's the part that gets me excited, thinking creatively how you can increase 
the income, the va- how you can add value to people and, you know, and of course to investors. I think the biggest thing when you started talking about the value add upfront is you're talking about flooring and appliances, nothing crazy like blasting open walls or full rehabs of bathrooms or kitchens. It's really like smaller items that uh, prospective tenants or future tenants will appreciate. Yeah. I would say when it comes to, you know, you got to understand that when you're looking at a a property, you're not going to, you're not going to live there. It's not a, a home. So the minimal kind of changes that you can make will go a long way. Just, you know, putting, you know, bringing stainless steel appliances is great. That's what people like. Um, When it comes to, I don't like to do anything that is super expensive, maybe add in, you know, a wall. If I can add another bedroom, I haven't done it, you know, haven't done it yet, but that's an option because it's not that expensive, but I'm not going to knock, you know, down walls and, you know, do, I, I saw a property, a beautiful property that the owner did a, an island, added an island in the kitchen and invested $20,000 in each apartment. That's wow. not, you know, you, that's you a long get a time to get a return on that. Return. Right. Yeah. Exactly. There's no return on your money. The, this, this person was, was a nine year old approaching 90. He was very proud of his property. He wasn't doing it to make a lot of money. He just wanted to make it as nice as possible. And we have a different mindset. It has every dollar that, that, you know, is spent has to bring some value, has to come back to us with some extra. Frank, how many units have you dumped 20,000 into to make a nice kitchen? It's been a couple, but, <laughs> but I had to buy them at a scoring deal. Yeah. You know, maybe, if, you're maybe. Buy, if, if you're buying a single family for under $50,000, you can afford to put in a $20,000 upgrade, you know, just in the kitchen. Absolutely. I don't know. I, th- I think about a lot of the multis we own, and uh, trying to get a return on that twenty thousand dollars kitchen would take the better yeah. part of a decade, probably. Yeah. No, the value add that we're that we're doing right now, the five hundred six C, we're we're estimating about four to five thousand per door on inter on interior upgrades. Yeah, uh, that's standard. That's I would say most of our deals are around those numbers. I'm not saying that twenty thousand dollars never you know makes sense if it's a high end you know if it's a very nice building but the units are a bit dated and you can push rent by five hundred dollars you know maybe maybe but so, you know where we are in a cycle right now I I'm trying to take you know as you know I'm I'm just trying not to be very risky. Fair enough. Perfect. Fair enough. So when you talk about being able to push rent by five hundred dollars and maybe it's worth a kitchen is that upfront? as you're identifying your target area or is that more as you're scoping the deal? Oh, everything is upfront. Before I even submit an offer, I know exactly what are the, what's the competition is doing, what's the average, you know, price per square foot, rent per square foot in the next, uh, you know, in the near one to three mile radius. Okay. Um, I know what's the, what are the expenses each month and also one-time expenses like roofs, Yep. Uh, you know, HVAC, cool mate, you know, any, anything that we need to do, you have to know all those numbers before you make an offer because without knowing them, how can you know what price you can afford to buy the property? Otherwise you're just guessing and you're risking your money and your investors right. money. Absolutely. Yeah, you always have to know ahead of time um, as you look, just as you're looking at the deal, uh, Jim, back to the concept of the $20,000 upgrade. I mean, if you're talking like she lives in Santa Monica or, and even closer to us, if we're talking like Boston, 
it's not as big of a deal if you find uh, like an elderly couple that has, you know, a three family or triplex and they're still renting it at that $700 per unit kind of thing. And right. you know that in parts of Boston, you're going to get it for $2,000 a month. So, you know. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really good to add in that perspective there. You really have to pay attention to your market and work through that due diligence up front. We'll call that sure. a heavy value add. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ellie, any, um, in any of the deals, uh, any real learning experiences where um, I won't call them like mistakes or failures, but any uh, education that you've had um, on any of the deals that you said, wow, now that I know that, can you give any stories related to that? Um, where to start? I mean, there's so many, I would say when you're partnering with someone, make sure you do your due diligence, you know, you know, who the partners are and have that tough conversation move, you know, beforehand, it's easy to have a conversation and say, okay, I'm going to do X and you're going to do Y, but what happens if you can't deliver on Y, then what happens? Have those, you know, likely scenarios. Um, and, and what happens if, if they happen because when a partner doesn't does not deliver then having those conversations are pretty hard and much easier to do you know up front kind of like you know a prenup in a way um yep. makes things a lot easier i'm trying to think about another another one as you're thinking about that uh to make you laugh about the prenup um, just the whole concept is I joke that all my partners, I'm kind of like married to them. So I joke that I have a whole bunch of sister wives, you know, because <laughs> every deal, it's that's a partnership. Terrible, you know? Frank, that's terrible. <laughs> every deal is like a, a big partnership. You know that. And it's almost like a marriage in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And it's, um, unlike marriage where you have more flexibility and, you know, I said that I'm going to take the kids to school, but now you're, you know, you're, you have a new career, you know, I'll, I'll do it to help you with partners. It's a bit different because usually you take on a certain, you know, you're taking care of a certain aspect of the partnership because that's what you know how to do best. And if the other partner is not doing it, then you don't always have the knowledge, resources, the time to do it. And so it's a little bit more challenging than that. Um, you know, I had to hire more people and grow my team. So, cause I just didn't have time to do what my partners, um, you know, in one deal, um, I have different partners in each deal and what they couldn't do. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit challenging, a little bit like, like marriage. I, I agree, but it could be a little bit more challenging. I, I definitely agree with that analogy. I think that when you set up a business relationship up front and partner ABC and you all have different things to accomplish obviously you can help each other out but those roles are fairly set yeah, it's not exactly. going to be as maneuverable like a marriage and helping each other out mm-hmm. would be exactly exactly so if uh if someone wanted to become a better investor uh what would be one or two things you'd recommend right now for them Ellie? They want to be better investors. I would say, first of all, educate yourselves a bit more. If you want to be a passive investor, you, you know, you can go to my website, ellieperlman.com, and you can download a guide for the five things you have to know in every deal. And that's also good for, you know, active investors and syndicators. If you want to buy a deal, they have to learn. I think the number one thing is educating yourself, you know, yourself on how to run the numbers. I got a call from a friend the other day saying, oh, I'm under contract. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I could use your guidance. And I said, congratulations. Um, and then after 10 minutes, figured out that he had no idea what was the market rate, how much it's going to cost to run the place or the CapEx, nothing. He just thought it was a good deal. So you have to know how to look at a deal. You have to have an underwriting, especially if you're, you know, an active investor, you can't just do back of an envelope, you know, or create some, write some numbers on a spreadsheet. It has to be right. a very robust spreadsheet. You have to look at, you know, expenses, income, you know, property tax is a big one, a big Huge. one. So before we send any offer, we have a property tax expert that um, gives us a quote of an estimate of how much property tax we can, you know, we will pay every year. And in return, if we get the deal, he gets the job of trying to fight the authorities and lower that bill. And if he succeeds, he gets X percent of the savings. So I think that's uh, really important. I think yeah. that's overlooked, particularly late stage in the cycle, because yeah. a lot of times the buildings that are coming on the market, the owners may have owned for an extended period of time. So when they go to sell that property and their assessment is relatively low and then they sell it for, I'll say on the average three family in our market, if they sell it for a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars more than what it's assessed at, your taxes are immediately going up that first year. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the most overlooked line item at this stage of the, you know, being late in the cycle and investors just overlook that line. And it's really, really important. Exactly. So you have to find a tax expert and say, Hey, if I have deals, can I send you you know, the information about the deal. Can you give me the tax estimates for the next, I don't know, three, five, 10, whatever years, you know, uh, how much, you know, whatever the whole period is. And if I get the deal, then I'll hire you to try and lower that tax bill. So it's kind of a win-win, but without that, you're, you're not even guesstimating. You're just guessing. And guessing is the most, you know, it's, that's the riskiest thing you can do in real estate. Yeah. And then one other topic that you just brought up as well is you can go and you can fight those new tax bills, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go out and you look in the market and you look at other comparable properties and you realize that they are assessed for less, you can go to the tax man and negotiate with them. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times the folks that they send out, they're just kind of throwing darts at the board and they assume that folks may not go to the town and try to negotiate the taxes, but there's absolutely an opportunity to, to do that. Yeah, because most people don't. Most people just right. pay it. And a lot of the experts out there, you know, you pay them based on success. It's, so it's yep. uh, X percent of whatever they're saving you. But the bottom line is that they're going to save you some money. And then when you're ready to sell it, then the taxes are going to be something that the next buyer is going to take into consideration, which will help right. you sell it for a higher price because it's part of the costs, the expenses right. that are now lower than what they were when you started. Right. So it goes a long way. Yep, absolutely. So Jim, just a quick example. Uh, Anthony and I own a six unit in Rhode Island and when we bought it, the taxes were 11,000, over 11,000 a year. And uh, we fought it ourselves and got a down drone, just over 8,000. So that, that was nice. our profit, you know, saving about mm -hmm. $2,700 a, a year in taxes. $200 a month from the bottom line. Yeah. So. This is the way that I like to break it down. Um, so sometimes I speak a little too quick when I speak math because I get excited. But you figure $3,000 in annual savings at a 10% cap rate is an additional 30,000 of value. And I recognize that's 
small potatoes when talking about larger deals, but for the average investor on a six unit property, an additional 30,000 of value is huge. Yeah, of course. $30,000 is a lot of money. Yes. Even though the wealthiest people, you know, in the planet is going to say the same thing. And, and, and there's a misconception that if someone has, you know, money, they don't care about 10 or 15 K, but the reason why they became successful is because they cared when other people looked away from the, you know, it's 500, 200 savings. They looked at those savings and they fought to get it and they fought to increase, you know, their wealth and their net worth. So absolutely. absolutely. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of I'm money. With you. So uh, Ellie, I'm not sure if you're much of a reader because we haven't talked about that, but um, ha have you read uh, any book lately that you would consider a must read? I'm a huge reader. Um, awesome. So are yeah. we. Um, there's actually a lot of the, you know, a lot of books I'm always reading, at least I'm trying to read one book every, every week right now. It's more like every two weeks. That's incredible. Um, one of, and, and I also take notes, um, and it's always about some, has some business context and it really helped me develop my, develop myself and evolve as, you know, a, um, you know, being a better person, a better partner, a better businesswoman. One of the yep. best ones that I've read by Gary Keller is called The One Thing. And yep. basically, you know, the Keller and Williams guy was pondering why his business years ago was not taking off, not making the right progress. And we all know where, you know, it, he ended up. Um, but w the main thing that he got, you know, he, he was doing some soul searching and realized that he was too scattered doing too many things. So he wasn't focused on one thing. And the one thing is basically saying, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, is saying, find the one thing that by doing so, everything else is either easier or unnecessary to do. Yep. And figure out that one thing that can really help take your business to the next level and block the first three, four, five hours of the day, do only this. And then he started seeing, you know, success in his company and he was able to grow. And that's basically what I, I've implemented that in my in my business as well the first three hours of the day from nine to noon i only work on the one thing that i need to work on right now that is the major pain point or the the big thing that can influence you know our profitability and uh, i i've seen results already so this is one thing that i highly you know recommend any anybody to read i love that i love that so appreciate the solid book advice so guys, listeners, uh, we appreciate you tuning into this episode. Um, we hope you really enjoyed listening to Ellie as much as we did. Um, in the meantime, if you guys want to give us a follow on Instagram at the Cashflow Kings, and we would really appreciate your help if you could click that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. And Ellie, if the listeners want to reach out, where's the best spot to follow you? So you can definitely Google my name and my website is ellieperlman.com and Ellie is E-L-L-I-E. And you can, you know, get in touch with me there or just email me at Ellie at EllieProman.com. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Perfect. So guys, um, reach out to Ellie, check out our website. We hope you really enjoyed listening to this one. Cheers to your success. So the Cashflow Kings is for uh, basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal tax or investment advice. All right. Thank you, guys.